Hello, and welcome to episode three of Little City Big Sound. David Pender Lofgren here with another interesting, if slightly late, installment. I know, we've already kept you waiting long enough, so let's dive right in. This month's guest is Kaylee Miranda Schmid. Where to begin? Kaylee is a founding member of the genre-bending band Polecat, a perennial Bellingham favorite that has spent the last eight years playing stages big and small all across the Northwest. She's also the driving force behind Giant's Causeway, a contemporary Irish and Scottish trad group that, in full disclosure, the host of this program plays in as well. Not content to just be a performer, however, Ms. Schmid teaches a swath of fiddle students each week while somehow hosting monthly Kaylee Club meetings, more on that later, and organizes not one, but two multi-day music festivals in town. Kaylee and I have been friends for many years now, but I have to say that it was a joy to sit down with her and talk about how and why she has pursued so many ambitious endeavors. So without further ado, Kaylee Miranda Schmid. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> uh, when people ask you what you do, what do you tell them? I say I make money in music. You make money in music? Yeah. I'm kind of uncomfortable just saying like I'm a musician. So I just say music, hoping that it can encompass lots of different types of money making through music or not money making through music. <laughs> I guess I ask because I, I feel like you, I mean, you're a musician in the sense that you play music uh, professionally, you're also a teacher, but then you like organize and facilitate a thousand other things mm -hmm. too. Yeah. I think when people ask you what you do, they're trying to ask what you do to make money and organizing stuff doesn't make any money. So I <laughs> <laughs> kept that out of it. Yeah. I'd say teaching would be my main focus and I would, I'd be comfortable saying I'm a fiddle teacher first. Hmm. So when I think of the Kaylee Schmid origin story, I start. Uh, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> well, I start in uh, in I don't know what it's like '08 or '07. Whenever uh, we met, when you were playing at the farmers market mm -hmm. with Clea, yeah, Clea Taylor, that is Clea uh, now Johnson. Clea Johnson, mm -hmm. cellist. I just started getting that right. Uh, but it probably starts way before then. Like, where where do you? Where do you see sort of your your trajectory to now starting? Mm -hmm. um, I took lessons, fiddle lessons, from Anna Shad, who is a local musician. She played Celtic music and blues, and um, I saw her performing at the Mount Baker Theater. Um, at that point, I'd taken some violin lessons but wasn't super excited about it. And then I saw her, and she was so glamorous, and she was playing so fast, and there was just so much drama around. I just loved that. Um, and she became my fiddle teacher when I was 12. Um, and so from 12 to 18, I did pretty regular lessons with her. Um, she taught me a bunch of tunes. We also did Boron lessons. She played that. Boron. Bowron. What is the baron? It's a an Irish frame drum that you play uh, with a stick, and it's it goes really well with Irish tunes. Um, and so we did both of those things, and I started accompanying her in her performances playing boron. 
Okay. So the, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. So the first time I ever performed was drum. Um, and that didn't last very long. <laughs> I thought I was pretty cool for a while. And then I guess around 18 or 19 years old, um, she introduced me to Clea, then Clea Taylor, now Clea Johnson, who plays cello. And she introduced us um, because her and another girl named Elizabeth Davis were also taking lessons from Anna. And she thought we'd be like a cool trio. So she set that all up and we started playing together. Um, Wait, so was that Giants Causeway the three of you first? Never called Giants Causeway, I don't think, with the three of us. I think that we had some really cutesy little, like, ladies of the heather, <laughs> darling <laughs> Scottish-Irish lasses, stuff like that going on, uh, which we quickly abandoned. But we did a photo shoot. We played two shows, and <laughs> we had a huge photo shoot. I don't think we had any shows after that. Um but that was kind of like the beginning of me thinking oh, I'm going to perform Irish music. Um, and Clea and I had been playing only a couple months at that point. And now that's been, I guess, 12 years that we've been playing together. Wow. Yeah. So playing with Anna um, on stage was a huge boost for me thinking, oh, this is something that I could do. All of a sudden I'm playing like actual shows in theaters um, which is a you far You were 12 cry. years old? Is that what you said? When I started taking lessons. When I started oh. doing shows with her, I was like 16, 17, 18. Did it feel weird being 16? Like, did it, um, did it feel like you were crass- crossing into a weird barrier of like, oh, I'm playing shows now? Or was that just, were you too young to really understand what was, I was, was a big deal? I was so terrified that I have no memory <laughs> of most <laughs> of it. I was like, just so much stage fright and fear and awe of like Anna is here doing this and I'm just like gonna try and keep up with her and like hope this is the way she wants it to be uh yes I don't really have many I remember thinking it was really cool afterwards and my parents telling me it was cool that's how I knew it was cool because they were realizing like oh this woman has taken Kaylee under her wing and um yeah she just we did like coaching stage Um, stage coaching, like how to feel confident on stage and like, um, yeah, I don't know how to (laughs) describe that. She was a mentor. She was Mm. definitely a mentor. We talked about all sorts of things having to do with performance and yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I feel like before we go too far, uh, in an effort for full disclosure, we should say that we play in a band together. Oh yeah. And it is very much thanks to you that I play Irish music. Yay. Um, so for those listening that don't know that already, we should be open about that. Um, so you started playing the drum, the the Bowron. Bowron. First, um, but that didn't last very long. Yeah, I I didn't wasn't really getting any better. I wasn't really inspired by the instrument, I don't think, at the time. And I wasn't getting better, and I wasn't really practicing it those three things in some order. Um, And so I was already taking fiddle lessons and knew a bunch of tunes that Elizabeth and Cleo were playing. So we just started incorporating me as well on fiddle. And then I can't remember how Elizabeth kind of stopped playing with that group, but Clea and I kind of were a duo for a while. 
and we would play at McKay's Tap House, formerly Pizza Pipeline. Yep, so Clea and I had like three weekly gigs. We were doing there, we were doing the Copper Hog, and we were hosting a session at Ishka. So that was like uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, And I'm pretty sure I wasn't 21 and didn't get to take advantage of all of that free alcohol that I was being offered, which made it kind of not as worth it <laughs> looking back, making just tips and eating pizza. Um, but that was really fun. And we did a, we just played so much and a very short list of tunes over and over and over again, which I guess we got pretty good at. So I've heard that you got into Irish music or at least became interested in Irish music originally before anything happened with Anna, right? Well, like you were dancing and then her Scottish dancing or something? Yep. Um, I started doing Scottish Highland dance when I was 10 with Clan Heather Dancers. Um, The teacher is Heather Reichendeifer, and she still teaches in in Bellingham. Um, And I took lessons from her for eight years doing Scottish Highland and competing and traveling, and that was really cool. Um, But after my dance class there was an Irish dance class that Heather also taught. Mm. And I liked the music quite a bit more in Irish dance than the bagpipe music in Scottish dance. I love bagpipe music, but at that time, I definitely thought the Irish dancers had something better going on. Um, And so I I just listened to it. I started listening to it more, listening to, like, Natalie McMaster, who's a Cape Breton fiddle player. We had her CDs in The Chieftains. Um, and a couple just like super well-known bands who played Celtic music. Um, and I would just kind of like jump around the house. And then I realized I could try and play those tunes because I played a violin. And that was kind of the, the segue into playing the music instead of just jumping to the music, which is also great. Jumping to music is awesome. So for a while you were, you were Scottish, competitive Scottish Highland dancing and Taking lessons with Anna yep. at the same time. Yeah, for like there's probably like a six-year overlap of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And looking back on that now and also talking to other people about it, it was really crazy that I was so into that type of music when no one in my family played really an instrument, but especially like a specific type of folk music, and I didn't have like... Uh, any outside influences beyond beyond those things. Um, when I started playing more and more, I met more of Anna's students who were also learning tunes, and that's probably what kept me going as a teenager was playing with other people, my peers, you know, other 14 and 15-year-olds who it was, like, really important that we, like, who was playing faster and, like, who knew more tunes, and that was crucial, I think, keeping me going. A little healthy social competition. That's right. I still feel it. (laughs) (laughs) How did the American Music Theater uh, Company come into, figure into all of this? Yeah, right. So in, I can't remember the year, but I was 20 and Anna Shad, my teacher, had traveled to... Charleston, I believe, to do a show there where she was like the violinist, the Celtic violinist in this like fancy show. And they did shows all over the place. 
um, and they wanted Anna to come to Pennsylvania to do a Christmas show, which she couldn't do. She decided she wasn't going to be able to make that trip. And so in her place, she offered up her protege, which was me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I had to audition still, so I like made a video audition at the Mount Baker Theater, and I was so freaking nervous the whole time looking at that. I've watched it recently, actually watched that audition. I was like, I could see visible discomfort. Luckily, they did not see that, and they hired me to do it. Um, so I flew to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the first time I'd ever traveled by myself, ever, anywhere, and I was 20. And I went and I lived in a house next to the theater um, with, like, four other girls who were all much older than me. And um, every day we would go walk over to the theater and we'd have rehearsals for, like, three weeks and then the first show, I remember, I think it was on Halloween, our first show of the Christmas season. And it was, like, just breathtaking. Like, I'd never done anything to that caliber before. I had in-ear monitors, which I'd never tried before. Um, I had five costume changes, huge ball gowns, like sequin ball gowns. Um, hair pieces, like little wiggy things and like jewelry to match all these different outfits. And I have my own dressing room, which apparently Jewel also had this dressing room when she did a show at this theater. That was pretty cool. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And we did two shows a day, um, five days a week. And then on one day we had one show. So that's how many. 11. 11 shows a week. Wow. 11 shows a week for nine weeks. And uh, at the end of every show, you'd walk in front and like shake the hands of all these little girls and get their photo taken with you. Like, I play violin. (laughs) 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 That kind of stuff. Got to sign autographs and um, yeah. And that was the first time I came in in contact with uh, with the term... Fiddle chick, which I found out is what the, my role was, which is if you've ever seen like Celtic woman, or I guess you could say this exists in a lot of different Celticy shows like Riverdance and stuff, is that there's a woman who is supposed to be like a really lively, vibrant, flirty girl who plays fiddle and walks around and winks at everyone. <laughs> And that was what they wanted. Um, And I was totally down to do that because why not? It's like very glamorous and yeah. But now looking at that now, it's kind of like, oh, I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I would do that now. Mm. What feeling how I feel about folk music and traditional music and like approaching it in that way. I don't know if I would have the same joy that I did when I was 20. Because you feel like that doesn't take it very seriously or? Yeah. I feel like it's not a good representation of how I feel about music. Um, But at the time, it was like the best possible thing I could have done. And actually getting like a paycheck from a theater at 20 years old as my first real paying gig was (laughs) pretty legit. So what did you do once you were done with that? I, before I had left to do that, I was going to school at Western, Washington University, 
and I thought I would come back. So I, I put my education on hold, which I hadn't declared a major or anything. And then I started classes again in January right after I got home. And the first day I was there, I just like checked out. Like I was not interested in any of the classes I was in. I just felt like I was in a different world um, and had a meeting with my parents <laughs> and told them that I just didn't want to do that anymore. Um, How did they react? They they were supportive of, uh, I, they just really trust me, I think, to do what's going to make me happy. Um, neither of them went to university, so it's not like... I think there was less pressure because of that. Um, so I started, I went back to work. I'd already been working at the Cliff House restaurant on North State Street. I was teaching. I started teaching fiddle lessons, I think, after I came back from that show. Anna Shad um, had passed off some students to me. I think she'd left, just moved or something. And so she gave me her fiddle students. And... Again, I just kind of started doing something that I hadn't really been planning on doing. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to be a fiddle teacher. But all of a sudden I had a a schedule. So I was doing that happily and um, got more and more students because of that. Kept performing with Clea, so I was visible. And there's just not many people playing fiddle visibly in Bellingham. So if you <clears throat> if you have a kid that says, oh, I want to play fiddle music, you just walk up to me, and then I gave you a card, and <laughs> that's how I got all my students, pretty much. Were you were you teaching at all before you had before you left for the American music thing? I don't think so. I don't think I was teaching before. So do you do you remember what it felt like to all of a sudden go from you know being a student of the fiddle, and then being sort of jumping into a performer role in a pretty serious way? Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden you come back and you're a teacher within like a month or something. Do you oh remember what it felt like to do that? That's such a, I don't really remember, but that's such a good question because I still think about that every day. I still think about like, am I a student? Am I a teacher? Am I a professional? And there's just no easy answer to any of that because I always feel like I'm still learning things and I am not at the level of so many other players that I admire. So I still think of myself as a student. Um, yeah, that's a weird, <laughs> a weird time to think about for sure. Um, I was always really uh, intimidated by classical music. Like I was around a lot of people that played really great violin, like great classical players. And at Western, there's like a great music department there um, with wonderful musicians. And I'd go hang out there. My friend was in the music program. And realizing, like, they're doing things that I can't do, and I probably won't ever try to do it. But what does that mean? You know, does it mean that I'm not um, as good of a musician, or does it mean I'm not as proficient as my at my instrument? I don't know. These are all questions I still have not answered. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, let's let's continue on the trajectory. Mm-hmm. So where did we leave off? You're uh, back from the American music thing. Mm-hmm. You have started teaching. And, and at the same time, you, uh, you and 
Clea were performing. Giants Causeway has sort of developed. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think we sort of left off right when Polecat had started. So right. take us through that. Like how, wh- how did that happen? How did mm-hmm. Polecat form? Yeah, so Clea and I were playing busking at the farmer's market um, pretty much every Saturday. And uh, Aaron Guest, who is now my husband, uh, he was also busking at the farmer's market. And I don't remember seeing him there. He has very strong memories of being threatened by Clea and I because we were getting more money than he was. Uh, so I guess to (laughs) quell the threat, he asked me to be in his band. (laughs) (laughs) So instead of competing, he just, um, took me into his group. And I remember actually he called and left a voicemail. Um, and I remember like listening to it at work and it was like, Hey, this is Aaron. Um, we met blah, blah, blah. And I'm starting this band. Um, we're going to be like a string band kind of project. And we're looking to have a fiddle player join. Um, and we've got a practice set up for Tuesday. So let me know if you can make it. And I remember listening to that thinking, hell no, I am not doing that. Like, I'm not going to join a band of dudes and play string band music, which I didn't have any interest in at all. And I'd never done before. I'd never played chords, really. Like, I'd never done anything other than playing melodies as fast as I possibly can. (laughs) So I was pretty sure I wasn't going to do it, but I had this feeling like this would be a really stupid thing to say no to if I'm going to call myself a musician and live in Bellingham and someone asked me to be in a band, like, this is dumb, I should just go. And I did. Um, And at that time... We already had all five people who are now in Polkat. All five people were already there um, at practice. And it's always been those five people. So that's me and Aaron and Richard Reeves on bass and Jeremy Elliott on guitar and Carl Olson on drums. And we all um, come from totally different backgrounds musically. Um, I really struggled at the beginning figuring out what they wanted me to do because I didn't listen to bluegrass or string band music, and that's pretty much what the set list was at the time, some originals, some traditional stuff. And, like, they would say, okay, this is in D. I'm like, okay, (laughs) cool. (laughs) That's great for you. Um, I can play you an Irish reel in D. Uh, So there was a lot of work that happened. Aaron really helped a lot with that. Everyone really helped a lot with that, like giving me ideas. None of them played violin, but they listened to it. And so they're like, well, I think I've heard like kind of chicken, chicken, like maybe you could do something like that. Uh, So really starting from ground zero on the um, string band movement. Um, And quickly discovered that I had like a major hole in my ability to solo, which was something that came really naturally to everybody else. And I think especially coming from Irish music, where you're learning melodies, you're just clinging to what you know the next note is, and you try and do it as fast as you can, and you do it over and over. Um, 
I still can't really think outside of those parameters. I still think in blocks of tunes like that. Mm. So from the beginning, that was like, I told them I'm not going to solo. <laughs> I'm not going to improvise, but I'm happy to play tunes. Um, so that was a lot of Polecat sound is that it's not, it wasn't really a string band as much. It wasn't like a bluegrass group with everyone taking solos. It was, here's a tune. We're going to back it up. Um, integrating bits of melodies that I had written or already knew. And yeah. It feels like the, uh, the most recent album that you guys put out, which was in 2016, right? Mm -hmm. The Wind. Yeah. To me, it felt like you guys really hit your stride on that one. Like finally there was this like, oh, this is what this band really sounds like. Um, do you, can you talk a little bit about like how, how you guys, uh, how your sound evolved or how you sort of came to that after those first days of just trying to figure out how to, mm. <laughs> how to play in the same uh, songs together? Yeah. Um, as far as the evolution of sound goes, um, we started out with a lot of boom, checka boom, checka boom. And at that time, Jeremy, uh, our electric guitar player, he actually started playing acoustic with Polecat and quickly realized that it wasn't going to be high energy enough um, and that it were just like the volume could handle an electric guitar. And also Carl Olson, the drummer, had a really tiny kit. Um, I think he had like snare, kick, hi-hat. I think that was it. And that was like our setup. It was like almost like a busking style. And uh, I guess after after about a year, it's we wanted to get louder. And Carl started adding things to his drum kit. And Jeremy started adding to his pedal board. And I feel like we we kept playing the same songs and the same things, but all of a sudden our tools were different. So what was happening was like a much fuller, louder, um, detailed sound. Hey, it's me, David, chiming in to say that we are in the process of developing some exciting advertising partnerships, but we've still got some room. So please let us know if your business is interested in sponsoring the show. Also, we have stickers. Whoa, dude. That's right, three episodes in, and we've already got merch. These stickers are awesome. They feature our instant classic logo designed by our in-house graphic arts team. Thanks, Andy. They're vinyl, which means they're waterproof, which means they won't fall off your water bottle when you run it through the dishwasher or accidentally drop it in the lake. And they're available on our website. Cruise on over to littlecitybigsound.com and visit our brand new online store. And keep your eyes peeled. Maybe we'll have some other cool stuff there in the future. Hey, Jerry, check out this sticker I just scored. Okay, back to my convo with a Renaissance woman, Kaylee Miranda Schmid. Okay, I want to move on to. There are so many other things to talk to you about. Okay. Um, but before I get there, a couple of sort of uh, weird specific questions about you and uh, playing in a band like Polecat. First, um, what are the most common things that audience members say to you when you get off the stage? 
<laughs> Ooh. Well, it depends what time of night it is. <laughs> uh, let's see. Gosh, that's a good question. Here's another way. Well, do fiddle players come up to you after the show? No. And I would never go up to another fiddle player. Really? Oh, my gosh, no. Because <laughs> when you when you actually want to talk to someone about, like, if someone does what you do, you can't talk to them. It's impossible. Why not? I don't know. <laughs> I can't talk to them. Sometimes people will come up and say, um, I really could tell, I could tell you like Celtic music. I can really tell, which is good because we're playing like a lot of Irish tunes. Uh, I can't really think of like what the phrase is, but like people will come up and say, um, I love your dress. I love your dress is probably the most common because you're not really talking about anything. It's just like a way to say hello to someone and be like, oh, I talked to the fiddle player. Right. So. It's funny that no matter, because I mean, you, you're a person who has played on a stage in front of thousands of people and to hear you talking about how you think about wanting to approach a musician who you respect <laughs> after they've played a show that you've seen. It's funny how, uh, to some degree, it doesn't change, even if you've had the experience of being the one on the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I would feel so crazy coming up to someone who just played a show and saying, hey, I play fiddle. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. That doesn't really mean anything special, I guess. It doesn't feel special. Like, right. I would want my conversation with that person to be awesome. And if it's not going to be awesome, then I don't want to talk to them. But what does it feel like if someone comes up to you after a show and says, hey, I play fiddle? Right. Great. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> glad you came up and said that because I would have no way of knowing you played fiddle unless you did that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me about the Bellingham Cayley Club? How yeah. How that came to be? Sure thing. So the Bellingham Cayley Club is spelt Bellingham, C-E-I-L-I, which is a Gaelic word that means like kitchen party, um, not my name. So Bellingham Cayley Club is not Bellingham Cayley Miranda Schmidt Club. It's Bellingham Irish Music Club. Great. Now I've got that out of the way. <laughs> is that something you have to explain a lot? Yes. <laughs> I feel really stupid telling people about the Bellingham Cayley Club, actually. <laughs> um, that started, I started that in August of 2013. Um, I don't remember why, really, but I wanted to start a session for people that wanted to play Irish music at a slower pace than the existing session in Bellingham, which I also was doing at Ishka. Um, so the the goal was to make it super welcoming, but to also have guidelines of this is how this kind of music works or how we want it to work. So no she music. You you learn the tunes at home and practice them at the session. Or you can kind of pick them up at the session, too, with lots of repetition. Um, it's pretty open to all instruments. We've had cellos and glockenspiels and all sorts of different non-necessarily traditional Irish instruments. 
Um, yeah, so it's the first Wednesday of every month. The first one we ever did, I would say there was like 40 people there. Um, that group slowly, month to month, whittled itself down to people that wanted to practice tunes and were actually interested in pursuing more and more. So the Bellingham Cayley Club started hosting uh, Bellingham Cayley Camps. Was that the first yeah. step before you the, before the festivals started? Yes. Uh, and a bunch of people I didn't know signed up for it. Like my students were there, but there was also just this great uh, amount of people that were interested in that. Um, I didn't know they were out there. And then that eventually evolved into the Bellingham Irish Festival. Let's talk about that. So okay. so uh, you had some successful camps. And it sounds like mm-hmm. you were surprised by the fact that there were other people interested. Yeah, definitely. I figured with such a unique interest, I would know everybody that already that liked it. Um, but it turns out, no, I did not. And there was all these kids that their parents signed them up for it and adults that maybe recently found an interest in it or um, didn't know where to learn fiddle in Bellingham. And they were signing up for it. And then I started incorporating, I wanted to make it bigger. I wanted to incorporate other instruments. I wanted to incorporate performances. And nobody knew what Kaylee was, C-E-I-L-I. And so we started calling it the Bellingham Irish Festival, which is a little more under, like easy to understand for right, people. You can read it and get it immediately. Right. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people thought that was like a beer festival. Uh, and we had to <laughs> disappoint them and tell them it was a traditional music workshop. <laughs> 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 but we had the first like actual big, fe- bigger festival. It wasn't even that big, but um, that was at the Unitarian Fellowship. And we had some out-of-town people performing and teaching. So we kind of like increased the the level of instruction. And a lot more people signed up for that one. We had pipes and flute and guitar and bazooki represented. Whereas like I can only teach fiddle. So that's kind of what everything was based around before. And then the Irish Festival, I think two years we had it in a building like primarily workshop format. And then two years ago, we moved it downtown and tried to emulate um, like a trad fest. So in Ireland, if you go to a trad fest, there's all these different venues that you can bop around to that have music in them. A lot of them are free, like free sessions or free concerts. Some of them are ticketed. Some of them are dances or workshops or people gathering to speak Irish together, like all these different elements. Um, and people busking everywhere. That's a really cool element of it too. Mm. Is this like people out on the street with their cases out playing great music. Um, so I kind of wanted to follow that, which was also a benefit to keep the overhead costs down. Renting a building is so expensive. Um, so I wanted to utilize like all these little businesses that were all, had space and 
potentially interested in having people come in and do something fun for a weekend. Yeah, so that we did that way for for two years now, and we're going to do it again this year. And uh, there's a t- lot more businesses interested in that now. So like Kombucha Town or Culture Cafe, um, Honeymoons hosted stuff. The Green Frog, when it was open, was hosting stuff. Um, I wonder if you'll, you'll be able to get the Firefly Lounge to host some things. I hope so. That would be really cool. My vision is that when you are downtown that weekend, you see people with cases walking around, and you hear like people playing fiddle in a wine bar and wonder what's going on and pick up a program. That, oh, I'm at the Bellingham Irish Festival. Like that. I like that kind of feeling. Totally. It's funny, I was going to ask you about... Wh- you know, usually when you think festival, uh, especially music festival, I think performances first. And so much of what you have done um, with the Irish music community, with the Celtic music stuff, has been sort of education first. But it makes a lot of sense hearing about the evolution of it, that like it, it came out of workshops first and then saying, oh, I want to add some performances to it or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I think it's really easy to not feel welcome in music. And I don't want people to feel like that. When there's, like, folk music is supposed to be played by everybody. That's that's the whole point of it, right? It's like people people music. Flip Breskin calls it living room music. I like mm. that. Um, and it should be really accessible and it should be friendly. Um, and you should still respect where it came from and the traditions, but it should you should also make it your own and feel like you are included in that community. Uh and at a music festival, thinking music festival like performances, a lot of the time there's a big disconnect between the musicians and the audience. I've I've felt that on both sides of it that um, maybe we're like we're not all in it together necessarily. Like you're sure. this role and I'm this role, and in folk music it does not have to be that. And that was really cool at the Irish festival, having a band playing. Even they, they were performing, but everyone in the audience had an instrument case with them. We were all part of the same group. That was that was a really neat feeling. Um, and sometimes people just need a, a safe place to get interested, like a workshop, where maybe, you know, they've seen Riverdance. Like, that's so cool. Wow, I didn't think I could ever do that. Oh, there's an Irish dance workshop. Let's go, sweetie. <laughs> and they can ask all the questions that they had and they can feel like they're included in it instead of just watching performances and maybe they just want to continue watching them, but they'll know more about it and feel like incorporated into it. I know that you've uh, spent a lot of time um, going to fiddle camps or going to sort of folk music camps um, in the summers or I guess in the winters too. Mm-hmm. Um, going to these camps, can you can you talk a little bit about what those camps are like and how that influences your vision of what like a, a music festival or a music community gathering is? The draw of fiddle camps for me is um, being around people that are so much better than me for a long period of time um, in a social setting as well as like an educational setting. Um, it's really good for me to like push myself to feel comfortable when there's so many people that are better around you 
to feel like it's okay to play with these people. Like they're not going to be offended <laughs> and it doesn't make you a, like less of a person to try and play with people that are at a higher level. Um, when I come back from those camps, I feel like enriched and I've like inspired to help other people feel those feelings. It's like a, it's a real sense of belonging. Like you found the ultimate tribe. You found people that love everything that you love. They do everything that you do and they're willing to just spend a week of their lives like frolicking around a field playing fiddle music. And that's like a super unique group of people. Um, I go to camps where it's a pretty high level of musicianship and I feel like I'm in the middle to bottom section of that. Um, and I don't think that like a lot of my students would feel the same way that I feel there. But when I come back, I like to imagine how I could recreate that feeling for people in this environment. And it can't be the same as fiddle camp. It can't be like a week of immersive, intensive, sleep de sleep deprived frivolity. It just can't. So like, how can I explain to a 12 year old why this is so cool and like why they should keep playing? Like, how can I use that? So it's, I guess it's inspiration really. It's just coming back inspired to help people connect the way I feel connected there. I was thinking about uh, when you're talking about how you learned to play fiddle and started to get into Irish music, um, that it was, you know, sort of rare that neither of your parents play, that it wasn't necessarily something that you were really surrounded by, but that um, you managed to find your way into these communities of people who were excited about it, you know, and that through taking lessons with Anna, all of a sudden I was like, oh, there are some other people who are into this. It strikes me that in your sort of development as an educator and as a facilitator, like that is exactly what you're doing over and over again in all of these different ways, right? You're sort of like creating these situations where um, your students get to see what it means to socially be into Irish music and not just do it sort of academically or, yeah. or with a teacher. Does that... Is that, is that conscious? Does that happen? Is that like you saying, I want to recreate what I was lucky enough to find as a kid? Or uh, Yeah, I think I'm aware of that. Um, yeah, I, I do feel super lucky that I had those experiences because I don't think I would have ended up here. I obviously wouldn't have ended up here any other way. Um, I don't necessarily think that everyone that I teach or play fiddle with wants to end up where I am. But there are a lot of things that I think I can offer as a teacher um, and as a young person that is maybe unique and can make kids or adults feel like they're more welcome um, when not everyone feels welcome in, in music circles. A lot of like what I teach is also how to feel good about yourself when other people are being dumb. In music. What do you mean? Like, <laughs> like not every Irish music session is welcoming. Uh, and when you walk into those situations, here's what you can look for. 
So I, I spend time like, I guess, coaching um, how to not feel the way that I feel a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me an example, like specifically something that you teach your, your students hmm. like that? Like what happens in an Irish session that doesn't feel welcoming that? Yeah. Okay. So imagine you're, imagine you're a budding fiddle player and you are 14 years old and you've been playing for a while. You know, some tunes, you can play like pretty good. So you go to your first session ever and you know, like this person's in charge and it's been like two hours and they haven't asked you if you want to start a set. So in that situation, that person is being rude because they should have asked you. And the next thing you have to think about is, are they being rude for a reason or are they oblivious? And if they're being rude for a reason, what could that be? And if they're being oblivious, then buck up and start it yourself and Having the courage to do that is um, a lot. You you really have to have faith in yourself to just like put yourself out into the session that way. Some people have no problem with that at all, but I'm an overthinker and I'm the type of person that would just sit there for hours and hours and be like, maybe they'll ask me this time, maybe they'll ask me. <laughs> and then you're like trying to make eye contact and um, I guess just walking people through that process so they don't feel completely blindsided when they get into that situation. It's interesting to hear you talk about um, overthinking or, or feeling, uh, you know, hesitant to to take the leap to sort of like jump in and do the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I Maybe this is, these are different scales, but looking at who you are and like what, what you have done um, in your trajectory as a musician and as, as you know, Uh, an organizer, a community organizer, it feels like you have over and over again, like taken the big leap, (laughs) you know, and again, maybe that, maybe it's a different scale, but it feels like there's something about you that's willing to say, like, I'm going to do this thing. It might fail. I don't necessarily know what I'm doing, but you're willing to do that. Is that, do you feel like that's part of your, your character? I think so. Yeah. I think I'm, I like to make decisions and have complete faith in them until proven wrong. Like that's really the only thing that makes me do anything is like I have to completely believe that what I'm doing is right. And and right in a way that's like right right for me. Um, and that, yeah, you can take that down to the level of like starting a tune in a session too where you just have to have faith in yourself that even if you really mess up, you gave it a good try and people will appreciate your effort. So yeah, then you like, oh, I'm going to start a festival. Well, I could think about all the things that could go wrong or I could just be like, I'm going to start a festival <laughs> and just and just believe that people will appreciate it and want to be part of it and support it. Um, yeah, you could look at that as like, not thinking about something enough (laughs) or you could think about it in like uh, (laughs) blind faith. I don't know. Does it get scary when you realize that you've committed to something? You know, when you've, 
all of a sudden sent out the emails and, and set up the venue. And then yeah. you think, Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> There's a period of time before almost everything, like whether it's a show that I organized or a festival or like just something new that I'm going to try. There's a period of time that varies right before you can't go back where you've like put a deposit down or you've confirmed like this band is going to travel up here and be part of this thing. Like that's like a no turn back spot. Um, there's like that, that period where I will delay and delay and delay and just try and not think about it and not do it. And then something will happen where I have to commit, which I always do. And then it's fine. And then I get really excited about it because I've committed to it. But there's like a pretty good window of hesitation and fear and doubt. But then once that's gone, like I can't feel that way anymore else. I won't get anything done. Does it get easier? So like the, the more times you face that window and then get through it, does it get any easier? Or it it kind of seems like you... You step up the uh, stakes every time. So. Yeah. I don't think it gets easier because then the experience is discovering all the things that can go wrong, right? So the more years you do something, you realize what your pitfall could be. So there's more things that you can have anxiety about, but then you're also more prepared to solve them in the future. But that I don't think that ever has changed for me that, that time before, being like, ugh. <laughs> Should I do it? <laughs> uh, why don't you just sort of describe what the Folk Fest is, how it's different from the Irish Fest, um, when that started? Cool. Just do, the, do the quick rundown. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Bellingham Folk Festival, I started in 2014. The first one was in December, and that came about... Um, I don't really remember having the idea necessarily... I remember kind of like chatting with it about it with friends and thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we just had our own thing? We keep going to all these other ones in other places. Uh, we should have our own. So the first one was December. It was weekend in December, one right before Christmas. Around November, I was panicking, thinking I'm putting all this money because there's no real backing. It was just me like hoping to break even pretty much. And then <laughs> right before, I, there was three days before the folk festival, where tickets were being sold online still. And I would wake up in the morning and check my computer and there'd be like this huge list of people that had bought them overnight. And it just made me so happy. That was that's still makes me happier than most things is seeing people buying tickets online to an event. Just like counting the people and, oh, yeah, just joy. Um, and then a lot of people showed up at the door without buying tickets in advance and we we didn't turn anyone away, but it practically sold out. It sold out. It was about 50% of local musicians and about 50% out of town. And that ratio has stayed the same since then. Um, so, yeah, there was a, a bit of a buzz, which was exciting. A lot of people said that they didn't want it to be in December. It was too close to Christmas. But I loved how festive that was feeling. Mm. It was like a really sweet holiday gathering without anything Christmassy about it. Um, but I did listen to people. And so then we had one in January 
the next go around. So we actually didn't have anything in 2015 and we had January 2016 was the next one. And that one went well as well. And I think we expanded on to Sunday that year. So we had a three-day festival. Um, I personally felt less warm, fuzzy feelings that year because it was in January and it wasn't like before Christmas. So I thought I would give it one more try and do it in December. And that was the same year. So we had two festivals in 2016. So December 2016 um, had like a lot of great musicians that were playing and there were not very many pre-sales. And then the Friday of the festival was the great Stormageddon in Bellingham where it actually snowed for a significant amount of time and roads were super icy. And there was about half of the attendance than in previous years. Whoa. Which was a real bummer. Bit of a hit. And I had not prepared for that at all, um, emotionally or financially. <laughs> uh, that was, It was more just a bummer to, like, not have that full feeling of, of people running around and enjoying it. Um, so I went into a little bit of personal debt, um, and that was fine, like, I wasn't too stressed out about it and hoping that next year we'd make it back. And we did. So this year we had it January of 2018 and it was the best yet. It was the busiest and it was the most joyous for me. Um, and financially came back out on top. So great. Yep. Now I can be prepared for snow or other things that happen. And I think also having it in January is better to just not compete with the holidays. I totally get that now. So do what's best for the community. I've heard uh, other um, musicians and festival sort of promoters, organizers talk about how um, one of the skills that you sort of have to uh, gain in the process of learning how to uh, book a festival is to trust your own taste that, you know, we all know that we like the things that we like, but to, uh, bet financially and emotionally on putting the things that we think are good out for the public to sort of vote on with their dollar and their time. Is that something that has been difficult or mm -hmm. for you? Uh, because I feel pretty connected to the people that come to the festival, I can balance what their likes would also be. Um, certain groups, I just really, really want to be there for musical reasons, but also energy reasons because they're going to make it fun for everyone. And I just can, I can feel that the community was going to fall in love with these musicians. They're going to go to their class and be like, this person is so cool. I'm just going to be a fan of theirs forever. And that's usually like how I found them in the first place is at a fiddle camp or something and being enamored with their personality as well as their music. So sometimes that's a driving factor. Um, I don't really listen to a ton of different types of music. So I also rely a lot on friends' suggestions and community members and other seeing what other festivals are booking. Um, 
because I don't feel like I'm a a tastemaker in many ways. <laughs> uh, I try and be really careful to not just book a bunch of Irish bands. And that's kind of great to have the Irish festivals because I can channel everything that I want <laughs> to be there. And then folk festival can be more an, an equal playing field. Um, I want to make sure that I'm representing more than old time. I like old time a lot. And there's great, great players that come up and, and teach and perform at the festival for that. That's really available in a lot of places. As far as folk music types go, I think you can find old time communities more easily than a lot of other types. So having someone teaching Danish folk music is something you can only get at the folk festival. And maybe you don't want to play Danish folk music every week at a jam session, but you have this opportunity to take a class from this person who's just going to be here for a short amount of time and provide a unique opportunity. So the festival benefits from that in that they're offering something you can't get necessarily at another festival or nearby. Um, and I think attendees benefit from that in that they're exposed to something that they're not seeing anywhere else. Hmm. So you were homeschooled for uh, much of your childhood. I was. Uh, did you, Does that mean that you, that one of your parents taught you? Or is that how that worked? At the beginning, it was my mom staying home and attempting to get me to do things. And we just would fight about it all the time. You can't tell me what to do. And so I um, used the internet. I learned to use the internet at the beginning of, of my computer years and found my mom a job at the library. No. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this looks like a really good thing you should apply for, Mom. And she did, and she got the job. And then I convinced my parents, or I gave myself too, too much credit maybe, we had a family meeting and decided it would be okay for me to homeschool alone, which meant being left assignments and then I started doing Internet Academy, which was a federal way-based public school um, where I took, like, the academic stuff that I couldn't get from books at home. So I did, like, all the math classes and typing and science and history and stuff on the computer. And <laughs> I just hung out by myself for a long time. What impact do you think that had on the adult that you are today? Uh, it makes cohabitating very difficult. <laughs> no, that's not fair. <laughs> um, I maybe I would already be like this. Maybe I'd be this person anyway. But I need a more. I recharge alone. Where you know, some people say that they get energy from groups of people, I usually feel depleted by groups of of people. Um, not that I don't enjoy that, but I I can feel the the strain, I guess, of of interacting for a long period of time. Mm. Everyone can probably. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely feel 
I look forward to having quiet, solo time. But there's lots of people that feel that way, and they weren't homeschooled, so. Do you feel like it changes the way uh, that you think about, you know, because you were responsible essentially for your own education, sort of self-directed, do you think it changes the way that you think about um, taking on all of these projects that you have? Maybe, yeah. I don't think I've thought about that too much, actually. I have thought about all the different ways that I did learn. Um, I started in public school, and then I went to a private school, and then I was homeschooled, and then I went back to public school and did internet classes and correspondence classes. And all those different ways of learning, I think, was great because I'll, I'll approach learning now in a, the way that makes the most sense to me because I've tried all these different things. And I can also help other people learn knowing that there's a variety of ways to approach it, which probably makes me a better teacher, I think, than if I hadn't had those experiences. But... Yeah, I guess being, I did, I was pretty responsible. I got stuff done. Got good, good pretend grades. <laughs> you gave yourself really good grades. Yeah. I was the best in my class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm uh, really glad that I get to ask you this question because I feel like you have often asked it of me, especially if um, we haven't seen each other for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh Usually at some point you just look at me and you go, what's next for you? <laughs> oh, nailed it. <laughs> That's funny. I definitely say that. Um, <laughs> what's next for me? So for the last three years, I've also had the Bellingham Folk School, which has been a, a community space that I started for people to hold classes and jams and stuff in and trying to make it affordable um, to start something up because it's really hard to find a space in Bellingham to rent if you want to have like a jam session. It's like 30 bucks an hour or more usually. So I I had the folk school um, on Cornwall. It's been a couple actually, a couple locations, but the last two years has been on Cornwall and we've had song circles and I've had weekly fiddle classes for people that just want to drop in and learn a tune, um, people getting started from square one on the violin. And that has taken up a lot of my brain power and energy and time for the last three years. Um, And I just decided at the beginning of April of 2018 to let the lease elapse on that expire on that space. Um, and I, it was a tough decision, but I, I'm looking forward to having a little more time to do the things that I feel like I haven't been doing so much, like reading books. And I started taking dance classes again and working on foreign language studies and writing fiction and yeah, learning tunes. Like I don't, I haven't really actively sought out learning music for a while. Uh, it just feels like the right time to to focus on those things. So 
It's a hard decision, but it feels healthy now that I've made it. And it may come back at some point. Just wait for the right opportunity. And there's a lot of people that are excited about playing with each other. They've met through jam circles and stuff. So I think there's going to be stuff continuing just in other places, which makes me happy. <laughs> oh, yeah, so what's next for me? <laughs> um, reading books. I'm currently reading Oliver Twist because I feel like that was something I was supposed to read 20 years ago and I never did. Uh, I don't have any new projects that I feel like I can articulate at this point. No. Doing less. Hmm. <laughs> Sometimes less is more. Sometimes less is more. Sometimes the things you do are better because you're doing less of them. Well, Kaylee Schmid, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, David. And uh, I, I was thinking about it this morning. Um, not just thank you for being on the podcast, but I realized that because of you, I not only learned how to play the baron, but then got a bunch of gigs in your band. <laughs> and also I met my fiance at a polecat show. Well, hey. So it's because of you that a lot of my life is the way it is. So That's Thanks. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to be a part of it. Cheers. <laughs> All right, that about does it for the third episode of Little City Big Sound. You know, listening back to the end of that interview, I realized that Kaylee mentioned writing fiction as a new endeavor. Did you catch that? I wish I had followed up. Well, do me a favor. When you see her around town, ask her about that, will you? We do have some bonus content for you this month. Kaylee shared with us some photos from those early days at the American Music Theater. So if you want to see her on stage in some fabulous ball gowns, head to our website, littlecitybigsound.com. And remember... If you like what you're hearing and you want to support the show, you can click on the donate button. Also, while you're there, sign up for our no spam only new show announcements mailing list. And oh yeah, buy a sticker or five. They're only two bucks and they look awesome. You'll also find a link to the music playing behind me right now. This is, of course, Polecat from their most recent release, Into the Wind. This month's interview was recorded at Binary Studios. Thanks, Bob. We were engineered and edited by Andy Rick. Theme music written and performed by Andy Rick. And our logo was designed by Andy Rick. Thanks for everything, Andy. Next month on the show, I sit down with my all-time favorite Bellingham drummer, Julian McDonough. Julian is a true local, born and raised here. He was a rhythmic whiz kid turned pro drummer that could have gone anywhere, but he chose to double down on Bellingham and has been working his tail off to develop and sustain world-class jazz in his hometown. We'll talk about his nonprofit Whatcom Jazz Music Arts Center, what it's like to play with your musical heroes, and how he practices the art of practicing. Stay tuned for that and so much more next time on Little City Big Sound.
teach your grandma how to listen to a podcast. <laughs>